after Jesus Christ returns to establish the kingdom of God on earth, we're told that his law will go forth from Zion to all the nations. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 2, and this is one of the scriptures which mentions that. In Isaiah chapter, chapter 2, beginning with verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Now mountain is often used in the Bible as a symbol for a nation. And so it says the mountain, in other words, the nation, the kingdom of God, will be established on the top of the mountains. In other words, God's kingdom will rule over all the nations of the earth, as other scriptures specifically tell us. And it says he, or it says, and shall be exalted above the hills, the hills being the smaller nations, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. So we see that all nations will be under the rule of God's kingdom, and that those nations will be seeking God's laws, and they will be taught God's laws. And it says as we read, that he will teach his ways to all the nations. So God's law is going to become the law of every nation on earth. We might ask, what is the foundation of that law? What is the foundation of that law which will one day supersede all other laws and become the law for all the nations of the world. On an occasion during his ministry, Jesus was involved in a discussion with some of the religious leaders among the Jews. And as we read about it in Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 35, one of them, who was a Pharisee in this case, as the context brings out, testing him, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we see that the very foundation of God's law, its vital essence, the motivating principle which permeates it, is the principle of divine love. And those who are in the first resurrection will be teaching to all nations that law, founded on the principle of divine love. Notice over in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Revelation 20 and verse 6, Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So 
Those in the first resurrection, it says, will be priests of God. Now, one of the primary responsibilities, in fact, the primary responsibility of a priest under God's system is to teach the law. The priests were commissioned and, and given the responsibility for teaching God's laws under the Levitical priesthood. And the same principle applies under the New Covenant to those who will be priests under Jesus Christ, who is the, will be the, is the high priest already and will continue to be the high priest. But there will be others in the first resurrection as priests and their job will be, among other things, to teach the laws of God to the nations. So if we're going to be in that resurrection, if we hope to be in that resurrection, then it is essential that we master the concept of divine love. Not only intellectually, but in how to apply that principle in our lives. Now, I think every Christian acknowledges that it is the duty of Christians to love others, to love God, and to love other people. As we just read, the great commandment of the law first of all is to love God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and also to love your neighbor as yourself so that is our duty as Christians but what does that mean exactly how is that to be applied in practical terms how do you actually go about loving other people because many people have a very confused concept of what love is, a vague concept to begin with, especially when it comes to applying love as it's spoken of in the scriptures. And there are all sorts of ideas, many of them distorted and perverted about what love actually is. And many of these perverted ideas are even taught by various teachers who claim to be speaking for Christ and representing Christ. From the earliest times in history to this very day, apostates and charlatans have used false concepts of love to deceive and subvert those lacking an understanding of what true godly love actually is. And you can even read in some sources associated with various churches that claim to be churches that are associated with the name of Jesus Christ for example, ideas that you can commit adultery or fornication, and that's just fine in God's sight as long as you, quote, love the person that you are sinning with. And these ideas are actually taught in some churches. And that's just one example of various ideas about love that are twisted and perverted and are completely false and contrary to what the Scripture teaches about this subject. The whole world, actually, beginning with us, has to be re-educated in the meaning of love. That re-education has to begin with us. If we have false or false ideas or a misunderstanding of what loving others actually amounts to, and what is our responsibility as Christians in regard to loving others and applying these principles 
that we read about. Understanding the truth about the meaning of godly love and how to manifest it is vital to the practice of true Christianity and to God's way of life. Today I want to discuss in the sermon true Christian love in action and give you a simple formula for guidance in how to love God's way. First, let's discuss the definition of love. The New Testament was written in Greek and a particular, a, a peculiar strength of the Greek language is its precision and its power to express shades of meaning. And the Greek has no fewer than four words to express different kinds of love. These words are eros, storge, philia, and agape. Outside of the New Testament, the occurrence of, of agape is extremely rare, although agape and agapeo, which is the verb form of the word, together occur more than three dozen times in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it was used by those who translated the Hebrew into Greek to express love from the standpoint of the scriptures. In the New Testament, agape with its cognate verb agapeo is by far the most common word for love, occurring about 250 times in the New Testament. But just what is agape as defined in scripture? Unlike some other varieties of what might be called love, agape is not, is not fundamentally an emotional response. Many people, when they think of love, think of emotion. And many people assume that to, to love God is to get all worked up emotionally and to express some sort of emotional fervor. But that's not what agape is. Agape, the kind of love that we are to love God first and foremost with and to express toward others, is a product of the mind and will empowered by the Spirit of God. It's not primarily an emotional response. And Here's what Vine's Expository Dictionary says about this word. Christian love, whether exercised toward the brethren or toward men generally, is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with the natural inclinations, nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered. Love seeks the welfare of all. And then they quote Romans 15 verse 2 or refer to it. And they go on to say, and works no ill to any, referring to Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. So let's look at Romans 15 and verse 2 in connection with agape, the love that flows from God and the kind of love that we are to express with the help of God's Spirit. By the way, that's not the only kind of love that is discussed in the New Testament, but it is the primary love that is discussed in the New Testament. In Romans 15 and verse 2, 
it says, let each of us please his neighbor for good, leading to edification. So notice that love is aimed at pleasing not just ourselves, but others. Pleasing our neighbor for good. Leading to edification, that which edifies or builds up, is constructive. Not destructive, but constructive. And notice it says not just to please his neighbor, but to please his neighbor for good, for his good. So, sometimes you may be expected to do something by someone to please them, but it would not be appropriate to do that because it's not really in their best interest in the long run. For example, you take your children to the store and they see a sack of potato chips or uh, soda and candy and ice cream and and everything they see in the store they want and and you get all of that for them and and uh, give it to them the things they desire which may not necessarily be good for them and there are many other applications of that that one could think of but just uh, doing what other people would have you do for them is not necessarily to their best interest so it is. It involves a decision-making process, applying love in that in that way. And in uh, chapter thirteen and verse eight of Romans, chapter thirteen, verse eight, it says, "Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law." In verse nine, it says, "For the commandments, for you shall." not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice how this principle is further defined in specific commandments from God's Word, including the Ten Commandments, which these principles that are mentioned here are come from. And it says, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We'll discuss more about in detail about this particular scripture later on in the sermon, but love is something that is done to benefit other people. It's not selfish, it's not inward, it's not, and it's also not destructive in, in its outcome. William Barclay, who wrote a book called New Testament Words that comments extensively on the on certain key words used in the Greek New Testament, writes about agape and he says this, agape has to do with the mind. It is not simply an emotion which arises unbidden in our hearts. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. Agape has supremely to do with the will. It is a conquest, a victory, and achievement. So notice again, agape is not simply an emotion, but it is a principle of divine love. It is a matter of the will. 
and it is something that we must deliberately choose to do. Now, that does not mean that there cannot be emotion associated with agape. Certainly, we can experience emotion associated with this kind of love, but that emotion is not the primary factor in the meaning of the term. Godly love does not occur accidentally. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we deliberately choose to do. Notice what Joshua told the Israelites over in Joshua chapter 22 and verse 5. He said, Take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God. Take careful heed, he said. Now, to take careful heed means implies that you apply your mind and your will. That this is something that you deliberately do. You decide to do this. And what was it you're to do? It says, take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God. And then he goes on further, elaborating on what it means to love God, and it says to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's how we love God. And this is something that we choose to do. It's a matter of choice. And people can choose to do that or they can choose not to. And most people down through history have chosen not to do that. But we can choose the alternative. We can choose to follow this admonition and follow what God tells us we are supposed to be doing in regard to loving him, we can choose to love God. We can choose to walk in God's ways. We can choose to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all of our hearts and all of our souls. Joshua also told the Israelites, this is recorded in Joshua chapter 23 and verse 11, Joshua 23 and verse 11 Therefore take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Again, the same idea here that this is something that we must deliberately choose to do and that we must love the Lord God because we choose to do that. Now, in the Septuagint, which as I said earlier is, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, where love appears in the English translation, agape, agapeo, the Greek form of agape, or the, the, he, uh, the verb form, I should say, of agape, appears in the Septuagint, where love appears in the English translation. These verses emphasize that loving God is something that we must choose to do and that it does require deliberate effort and an exercise of will to accomplish. Over in Matthew chapter 5, we read, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, 
as Jesus was teaching a group of people, especially his disciples, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is Matthew 5, beginning with verse 43. And went on to say, uh, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, what this tells us is that, again, this is not natural. This is not the normal way that we think as human beings. This is not the way human nature normally behaves, to love people who are not of your group or who may even be your enemies, people who spitefully use you and persecute you. We still have to love those people as well as the people that we have some affinity with that are in our club or group or or church or neighborhood or whatever. We, we, of course, have to love those people, but we have to love even our enemies. And this is not something that is natural for us as human beings. This is, this is something that takes effort beyond what people normally practice. God's love extends to all people, regardless of whether they are good or evil, or friend or enemy. Jesus Christ, for example, died for the ungodly and for sinners. And he did that because God loves those people, loves all people. Godly love has been described by William Barclay again in New Testament words as unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill, a deliberate conviction of the mind issuing in a deliberate policy of this life. It is a deliberate achievement and conquest and victory of the will. So, it is a matter of exercising one's will to apply this principle because it is contrary to our nature as human beings to do this, to exercise this kind of love. One of the implications of that fact is that this kind of love is not something that we can generate entirely on our own. Even though it requires an exercise of our will, something that we must choose to do, it is still not something that we can do entirely on our own. In fact, this kind of love must come from God as we submit our will to God's will for it to be fully expressed as God wants it to be. And a number of scriptures 
show clearly that Christian love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It is not exclusively through our efforts, but it does require our efforts to be accomplished in our lives. But it also requires the power of God's Spirit helping us. Notice over in Romans, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. Romans 5 and verse 5. Now hope does, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who or which would be a better translation was given to us. The love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So if we have this love, if we are actually expressing it fully, it is because God's Spirit is working in our lives and in our minds and hearts. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, we find some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit listed. And notice what it says in Galatians 5 and verse 22. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The very first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, as mentioned in this list. And then it goes on to enumerate some of the other fruits of God's Spirit. But the first one mentioned is love. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, working in us. One of the things that that tells us is that we need to seek this gift from God. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit and it is a gift that we need to ask for in our prayers that we need to, to pray for. And we need to go to God daily to pray for His love to be expressed in our conduct. To pray that God would place that kind of love in our hearts and minds and give us the strength and the power to express it in the way we live. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, in Philippians chapter 1, what Paul wrote about this to the Philippians. In Philippians 1 and verse 9, he said, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all, and all discernment. Now notice here that Paul was praying for the brethren. And what was he praying for? One of the things that he prayed for was that their love would abound. In other words, that they would be given this gift of love in abundance. Now we can pray for ourselves this same thing as we should. And we can also pray that God will grant that same gift to others as well. And we should include these requests in our prayers. Now notice also in this verse that love in, involves exercising the mind because it has to do with knowledge and discernment. It's not just an emotion. It is something that is expressed based on the right kind of knowledge and discernment. In other words, discerning right from wrong. Understanding the difference between right and wrong. That is really the essence, as we will see, of what 
love is. The kind of love that comes from God. The kind of love that is characteristic of God. It is an expression of right versus wrong. He goes on to say in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now notice that love has to do with being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And that it comes through Jesus Christ working in our lives. So it's not something that we accomplish exclusively on our own, but it does require an exercise of our own will, our own decision-making powers, our own efforts, along with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Mr. Herbert Armstrong, who is, you know, is a well-known minister of God, who died some years ago, but he often described love in his writings as outgoing concern. In his sermons and writings, he often spoke of godly love as outgoing concern. And what that means is that godly love is not something that is inward or selfish. It is not directed towards self, primarily. As we read in Matthew chapter 22 earlier where Jesus was discussing the first or the greatest commandment of the law and the second greatest, we notice that that love has to do with loving God and loving other people. And so it is outgoing. It is directed, first of all, toward God, and secondly, toward our neighbors or other people. It is natural for us to love ourselves, to to want to make ourselves happy and comfortable. And any normal person, any sane person, will do that. By nature, normal people don't expose themselves to deliberately to things that are going to cause great pain and harm to them. You know, normal people don't don't uh, deliberately injure themselves. Now, a person who has lost his mind, and there are even examples of this in the scriptures where where uh, people that are demon-possessed or have lost their minds are insane might harm themselves, but normal people don't harm themselves. They try to take care of themselves. If it's cold outside, you turn on the furnace in the house to keep warm, or you put on a coat when you go outside so you're not freezing to death. If it's too hot, you like to sit under the air conditioner if you can. Try to Try to make yourself comfortable. Those are examples of how it is natural for us to love ourselves. Paul wrote over in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, 
in verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Most of us, well, all of us, if, again, if we're sane, if we get hungry, we like to eat. We see that our hunger is satisfied so that we can continue to live because if we don't eat, eventually we're going to die. And so we do the things, generally speaking, that are necessary to sustain our lives because we love ourselves and this is something that is natural. It's not wrong to do that, but it is also not what godly love is all about. But it is something that we do in the nature that God gave us. Agape, however, is something that is not primarily directed toward ourselves. It is an outgoing love toward God and toward other people. And that's why those who claim that in order to love other people, we've got to focus on loving ourselves first are wrong. That's just another excuse for narcissism and what is very natural to most people to focus on themselves and become self-absorbed. But that is, really, it's not even healthy to approach life in that way. What, what we need to do is learn to love God as God requires us to do first And then secondly, we need to learn how to love other people. And if we can accomplish those things, we really don't need to be much concerned with loving ourselves. That part of it is going to take care of itself. So, we need to imitate God whose love is outgoing. And God's capacity to love other people is infinite. There's no limit to God's capacity to exercise outgoing love toward others. And that love extends to all of his uh, his creation, to all the creatures that God made, especially human beings. Every human being is loved by God, no matter who that person is, and even no matter how evil that person is. God still loves every human being. He has an infinite, unlimited capacity to love others. And we have to learn to develop that same capacity to love other people. However, we need to understand that loving other people in a godly way means that we love them in accordance with God's laws. That that love must be expressed in a way that is consistent with the love of God. For example, we don't we don't say that we love, quote, in quote, someone else's wife and commit adultery with somebody else's wife because we love that person. That is not godly. It is not according to God's law. It is not in the best interest of anyone. In fact, it is sin. And it is the opposite of what godly love is. God's law defines love. In Romans chapter 
13, verse 10. We'll read that again. We read it earlier and I mentioned we would comment on it further, which we will do now. But in Romans 13, verse 10, and it, it says, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love, first of all, notice that love does no harm. And it says, love is the fulfillment of the law as it's translated here. But actually that translation is wrong. It is sort of backwards. Because the Greek actually reads, if it were translated properly, it would read, therefore the fulfilling of the law is love. Not love is the fulfillment of the law, but the fulfilling of the law is love. Which places the emphasis a little bit differently. And what it tells us is that when we fulfill the laws of God, when we obey those laws, when we practice those laws, that's what love is. We are exercising love as we apply God's laws in our lives. Because God's commandments define what love is. And so loving others does not mean giving in to manipulation or pressure to do things that are wrong, to do things that are contrary to God's laws. You don't love other people by uh, participating or uh, enabling them to live in sin or to participate with them in sin because that's what they want you to do. In fact, loving others really implies resisting such pressure, which may make other people mad at times, may, may make them angry toward you because you're not willing to go along with their evil designs. And so they become angry. Often people were angry with Jesus because he did not approve of their sinful ways and he expressed his disapproval quite often, especially in his discussions with some of the religious leaders among the Jews. They had their own concepts, their own ideas of religion which were often contrary to what God actually requires. And Jesus spoke of them as hypocrites and pointed out to them their sins and they didn't like that. He was not in agreement with them in those ways and it eventually led to them plotting to kill him. So love is not necessarily doing what would please other people but it is doing what is good for them. We don't love other people by doing what is destructive or lawless. It does not mean allowing ourselves to be unduly influenced to do things that are unedifying or harmful to ourselves or anyone else. And there will be often pressure from so-called friends to do things that are harmful or potentially harmful. And many people are drawn into 
various evils in trying to please other people. Drawn into drug use, drawn into bad habits. Many people are influenced by peer pressure and the pressure of the pressure of society around them to do what is popular at the moment which may not necessarily be something that is good or may be pressured by another person to to get involved in some sin and this can happen very easily but that is the opposite of godly love godly love is resisting those pressures at the same time, godly love often requires self-sacrifice toward a goal that is truly edifying. Even though we're not setting out deliberately to harm ourselves, sometimes we must make sacrifices in order to express this kind of love. Notice in Ephesians chapter 5, again, where Paul is talking about love, between a man and a woman and also applying the same principle to our relationship with Christ and with God the Father in Ephesians 5 verse 2 Paul says walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma notice that among the ways in which the love of God has been expressed to us is through sacrifice. Through the giving, the offering of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for us. And this love was something that was planned and carried out by God the Father and Jesus Christ both. God the Father giving up Jesus Christ, His only Son, in certain respects, and Christ willingly giving up His own life for us. Sometimes this is what godly love requires, is self-sacrifice to accomplish a greater goal, a higher purpose. Now we've seen that love is a matter of will then or of deliberate choice. Love is outgoing concern. But we also need to focus on one other aspect of the definition of love which we've already mentioned. But love is also how you live, how you live your life. As we read earlier from New Testament words love is a principle by which we deliberately live and as Vine's dictionary says also love can be known only from the actions it prompts love can be known only from the actions it prompts so how do you know if you love others or you love God it is shown by your actions by your behavior love is rooted in the mind but it is manifested or by how you act, by how we behave. And so godly love is choosing to behave toward others in a particular way. 
out of genuine concern for their well-being. And again, an example of godly love is God the Father giving up the life of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that sinners, including us, all of us, might be saved. Notice in John 3, verse 16, the scripture that nearly everyone is familiar with, who knows anything about the Bible, or is, if you, most people, if they've heard any scripture, know any scriptures, would be familiar with this one. But it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the willingness of God to give up his son Jesus Christ so that we could have life was an expression of his love toward us. And the same is true of Jesus Christ giving up his life so that we might share eternal life with him in the resurrection. In Romans 5 and verse 6, Romans 5 and verse 6, it says, When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, in other words, while we were yet enemies of God in a sense, God the Father and Jesus Christ loved us to the point that Jesus Christ gave up his own life to make possible our our salvation. Even when God chastens us, that is done out of love. And sometimes God does chasten human beings, punish them for their behavior. Often he forbears and withholds punishment for a period of time, often a long period of time, but eventually, if we persist in sin, God is going to take action. But when God punishes human beings, He always does it out of love. He always does it to correct them in a way that will lead to, hopefully, their salvation. Ultimately, salvation is something that each person has to choose, but... But God, nevertheless, will intervene eventually in our lives if we are going the wrong way to correct us because He loves us. And in verse 6 of Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 and verse 6, it says, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens or punishes and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Any father who loves his children is going to discipline them in accordance with their need for discipline for their own good. Not in a way that is harmful or destructive, but in a way that is for their benefit. 
And any loving father will do that, the right balance. Now, there are some, of course, who are abusers, and that's a different story. But nevertheless, every child at some point needs correction. We all need correction at some point. God is a loving father, and he offers us that correction and administers it when he deems it appropriate. In verse 9, it says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So God does correct us, chasten us at times, but that is always done in love and for our good. There are many examples of love and action found in the Scripture, besides the ones we've mentioned. Paul was a minister who poured out his life to serve God and to serve other people and preaching the gospel and teaching people to live in a way that was pleasing to God. Notice what Paul wrote over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Paul had a number of critics, people who were in the in, in among the Corinthian church who opposed him, and he even wrote about false brethren that he had to contend with at times in various places, but he said that he was willing to be spent for their sakes, for their souls, to, to, um, to give his life in service for their benefit, for their salvation. But he said even... When I love you more abundantly, the, the more I love you sometimes, the less I am loved. Sometimes that's the way it works. Certainly that's the way it's worked with God. God loves all people, and yet most people do not truly love God. They may say they love God, but that claim is belied by their actions quite often because they don't do what God wants them to do. They don't really try to please God in their conduct. And so their love is not genuine. And it is not what God requires of us. Paul found that often his sacrifices for the benefit of others went unappreciated. And yet... He continued to serve until the last of his days, until the end of his life. So there are many examples in the scriptures of godly love being expressed, not only by God the Father and Jesus Christ, but by various individuals who were empowered by God to express that kind of love and set an example for us. How can we put that kind of love into action in our own lives? The law of God itself is intended, as we've mentioned earlier, as a practical guide for how to love others, for how to love God. 
in a sense, the laws of God constitute an expanded definition of love. The entirety of God's word, for that matter, is a definition, an explanation of godly love. As we learned earlier, first our love should be directed toward God. Jesus said, as it's recorded in Mark 12, verse 30, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you manifest that love toward God through obedience to His Word. That's how we love God. In, in Exodus 20, beginning with verse 5, in Exodus 20, beginning with verse 5, we read, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice how love is placed in association with keeping the commandments of God. And we see this, this formula referred to over and over again, many places in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Notice over in Deuteronomy, for example, in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Those who love Him and keep His commandments. Chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. And verse 1, it says, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. How do we love God? We keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. Vine's Dictionary again says, Christian love has God for its primary object and expresses itself first of all in implicit obedience to his commandments. Obedience to his commandments is how we express godly love. Numerous statements and examples from Scripture tell us that to love God is to obey him. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And in 1 John 2 and verse 4, 1 John 2 and verse 4, it says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, there are many who claim to represent Christ who say that God's law is done away, that his commandments are have been abrogated, 
that we are under no obligation as Christians to obey the laws of God. But those who teach such error are teaching against love, the kind of love that God requires us to have as Christians. They're teaching against love and they're teaching against God's will because it is God's will that we obey his commandments as, as he's expressed dozens, hundreds of times in the Bible. And it is God's will that we love, that we express love toward him and toward others by keeping God's commandments. And that brings us to loving other people. How do we do that? How do we put love into action in our relationships with other people? Again, God's law is magnified through the teachings of Jesus Christ reveals how to love our fellow man. Jesus said the weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. In chapter 23 of Matthew, in verse 23, the weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith. And the laws of God tell us how to exercise these concepts in the way we, we relate to other people, how we treat other people with justice, with mercy, and how we treat them with faith toward God and faithfully. For example, the law tells us, and this is for young people, but it's for old people as well, it says, honor your father and mother. That's one of the commandments. Honor your father and your mother. So, if we exercise kindness and service and honor and respect toward our fathers and mothers, we are loving them as God would have it. And if we're children, that, that includes being obedient as is appropriate and godly to what our parents tell us to do as long as it does not violate God's laws and so this is this this law tells us how we relate to fathers and mothers if we're children and all of us presumably have a father and a mother or we did have if they're not dead or missing for some reason those are the ten commandments that are stated negatively tell us certain things that we ought not to do that if we do are harmful. For example, we're told not to steal because stealing is something that is harmful to others. It is wrong. It harms and hurts other people. But there's more to that law than just the negative part of it, not stealing. There is a corollary that is also expressed in Scripture that we are not only not to steal from others, but that we are to be concerned about the needs of others and give to others to help supply those needs when it is appropriate to do that. And this is a principle that is expressed various places in the Bible. 
For example, over in Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs 11 and verse 25, Proverbs 11 and verse 25 says, The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. What this tells us is that we need to exercise generosity and be giving in our attitude toward others, not grasping and trying to take from others to always get the best of someone else, but to be generous and giving and concerned about the needs of other people, not just our own needs. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, Ephesians 4 and verse 28, Paul said, Let him who stole, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. So notice that we're not only not to steal, but that we are to be working so that we might have something to give to others. And what this tells us is that that when we work, we don't just keep everything we earn for ourselves, but that we share some of it with other people. This is a principle of God's word. It's a part of obeying that law that is expressed in the commandment. You shall not steal. Not only should we not steal, we should be generous and giving to others, do for others, help others where we have the opportunity to help them or give to them. And this can be expressed in a number of different ways, helping people out when uh, when, when they have need of something, helping a neighbor who who, who may be uh, may be a shut-in, for example, and who may need help with getting groceries or various other needs a person might have. Helping somebody who may be stalled along the side of the road and need help to get their vehicle going or something of that sort. There may be occasions where we can serve somebody in that way. All, all kinds of different ways that we could apply this in our relationships with other people, but the point is we need to be concerned not just about ourselves and our own needs and trying to grasp and take and grab for ourselves and even steal other people's belongings. We need to be willing to give to other people and help them. The law says, do not murder. So we're not to take somebody, someone else's life. But... A corollary to that is not only not to murder others, but to do things that will enhance their longevity when we have the opportunity. In other words, we we feed those who are hungry, who may be in danger of dying if they're not fed. Actually, a good-sized proportion of the world today consists of people who are on the edge of starvation because of circumstances, often because of warfare and natural disasters and things of that sort. But there are people who are 
literally in need of others to help them to keep from starving to death at times. And if we have the opportunity to help those people, then we have that obligation. We, we can, we may have uh, an obligation at times to help someone who is sick or diseased, especially among our own family members, where this would often apply, but not, not limited to them necessarily. We, we can give comfort and aid to others who are in need of help. And that is a part of applying this law that tells us to do what we can to preserve the lives of others. In Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, in verse 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this desire for vengeance is often a cause of ongoing strife and warfare among peoples that can go on actually for generations, and in many cases has been going on for generations where people are killing each other, different groups of people killing one another because of past grievances. As Christians, we must not seek to avenge ourselves but put that in the hands of God. But notice what it also says in verse 20. It says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Not only your friends, but even your enemies, it says. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, if he persists in being your enemy, even though you're doing him good, God will take care of that eventually and see that justice is rendered. But we are not to take vengeance. We're not to kill other people. We are to love even our enemies. And if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the principle. Overcome evil with good. Seek to do good for others in whatever ways we can or ways we have opportunity. The law says you shall not commit adultery. A corollary to that is to love and respect our wives, to treat our wives with devotion, with kindness, with tenderness, as the Scripture tells us to do over in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 28 it says husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself so how do you love your own body do you abuse it or do you take care of it do you try to make your own body comfortable? Do you try to, to uh, satisfy the needs of your flesh? Most of us do. Again, if you're sane, that's what you will be doing. But you also need to 
apply that same concern to your mate. And it goes on in verse 28 to say, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So, we have that obligation. And wives have an obligation to love their husbands as well, and to respect their husbands as head of the family. Wives have an obligation to be faithful to their husbands, as husbands do to their wives, in thought, word, and deed. And married people must strive to overcome any temptation to violate that bond or that trust that is a part of the marriage covenant. In Proverbs 31 and verse 10, Proverbs 31 and verse 10, it says, Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. And then going on in verse 12, it says, since she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. So this is how a wife ought to behave toward her husband. And this is a part of how we apply that commandment that we are to be faithful to our mates and not be adulterers. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 33 Ephesians 5 and verse 33, we see more instruction, specific instruction to wives. And it tells us, verse 33, Ephesians 5, nevertheless, let each one of us in, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And other scriptures, tell us that men are to also respect and honor their wives and that wives are to love their husbands as well as respect them. Love and respect are keys to a husband and wife living together in peace and harmony and and in a way that is fulfilling to both of them. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 11, it says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. This is speaking of the qualifications for deacons. And this, although this directly applies to the wife of a deacon, it really is something that all Christian wives, all wives really, should be striving to do should be faithful in all things and in 1st Peter chapter 3 1st Peter 3 and verse 11 or verse 7 excuse me 1st Peter 3 and verse 7 it says husbands likewise dwell with them that is with your wives with understanding in other words husbands should strive to understand their wives. 
understand their needs, understand their point of view. Uh, see, in other words, see uh, see things from their perspective and not just your own perspective. And take into account their needs and their wishes and their desires. Giving honor to the wife, notice here is respect or honor that husbands are obliged to render toward their wives. Giving honor to the wife is to the weaker vessel. Now it doesn't say the more stupid vessel or the dumber vessel. It says the weaker vessel. Weaker women are weaker in terms of physical strength as a general rule than men. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're weaker in other ways. But they are weaker in terms of physical strength as a rule and we're to take that into account in the way that we treat them as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice that if we do not express the kind of love toward our wives that we should, then that will hinder our relationship with God. Because this is a part of what God requires of us in obedience to, to obey His laws, to be obedient to Him. It goes on to say, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. In other words, we're, we're to be, uh, be merciful, compassionate, tender-hearted toward each other as husband and wife, but also as brethren, as neighbors, as human beings. Love as brothers, it says, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Yes, as Christians, we ought to strive to be courteous to others. We ought to be tender-hearted toward others. And that includes our children, our wives, our husbands, and other people. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this. In other words, we don't try to get even because somebody mistreats us. Rather, we try to behave in such a manner that even our enemies will be blessed. And sometimes it's difficult to do, but uh, and, and sometimes the best way to get along with someone is from a distance but nevertheless, we have the, the obligation not to express hatred or violence toward other people. That you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from spe speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this is a part of applying the principles of God's commandments, specifically in various relationships that we have in our lives. The law says, do not lie. We're not only not to lie, but we are to speak the truth. 
and we're to speak the truth out of genuine love and concern for human beings, for other people. Notice in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 5 verse 33, or excuse me, Ephesians 4 rather, and verse 15, looked at the wrong scripture there. Ephesians 3 and verse 15, or verse... Uh, Ephesians 4, I said Ephesians 4 and verse 15. Get it right here sooner or later. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. In other words, we have an obligation to speak the truth to other people, even sometimes when they're not willing to accept it. We have an obligation to speak the truth. And this would apply especially to ministers which is what it, what the context here is about. But it also applies to each of us as individuals. We have an obligation to be truthful and to promote the truth in appropriate ways. And so we must speak the truth. We must not be willing to compromise the truth and to speak lies for our own advantage. And this is something that many ministers, frankly, are guilty of, teaching things that they know are false or or that they should know are false because they feel that it is to their advantage to say what people want to hear rather than the truth. And ministers especially are going to be held accountable. We're all going to be held accountable for the things we teach or say. And we must make sure that what we are teaching is true. Or do our dead level best to make sure that what we teach is the truth. And if we find that something we believe or teach is not true, we need to change it, correct it. And even if that costs us a position, or costs us uh, relationships in some church or association, we must be willing to give that up to pursue the truth and to speak it and teach it if necessary. Another way we can apply that is being willing to share the gospel through our example. One of the ways that each of us can further the gospel is through our own example. In fact, as members of the church, that is really the primary way in which we can appropriately take the gospel to others. It says in First Peter chapter two and verse nine, "You are a chosen generation." This is speaking to those in the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we all have a an obligation to be involved in proclaiming the praises of God. And in verse 12, it says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe 
glorify God in the day of visitation. So we have an obligation to represent God and the, the truth of God through our example. And people may not get it now. They may not appreciate it now, but they will later when perhaps even in the resurrection they have a change of heart and learn things that maybe they didn't really understand fully before. Another way that we can apply this principle of speaking the truth and supporting the truth is through our tithes and offerings. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul discusses the ministry and in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 13, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Now this is talking about the Levitical priesthood here and those who served in the temple, that is the priests and the Levites, were partakers of those offerings that were brought to the temple by the people in the course of their worship toward God. And there were specific requirements of what was to be brought, including tithes and other offerings that were required of the people of Israel under the Levitical priesthood. And it goes on to say, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. In other words, in the same way that the Levites were supported by the tithes and offerings that were a part of the system that they uh, served God in fulfilling that in that same way ministers of the gospel are to be supported in their work now Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that he says I've used none of these things and there were times when Paul did not take tithes of those he was ministering to directly, that does not mean he did not teach tithing. It simply means that he was not taking their money for uh, to, to avoid being accused of being in it for the money. And uh, that's there's a lot more to this uh, subject that could be discussed. It's really not our purpose today. But the point is that one of the ways that we can support the ministry ministering of the gospel is through our financial support. It's not the only way, but it is one way, which we all have an obligation to do. In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, in verse 14, Philippians 4 and verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress, Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning 
of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia. No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. There were times when Paul depended on certain churches who were willing to support his ministry. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So in their willingness to support Paul in his material needs and financial needs, they were going to be rewarded by God is what he's pointing out. Verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, the sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall apply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The point here is that one of the ways in which we can speak the truth and see that the truth is made available to others is through supporting those who are actively out on the front lines as Paul was taking the gospel to the world. Now it's not up to each of us to go out on the street corner somewhere and start preaching, but it is up to each of us to, in ways that we can, support the work of taking the gospel to the world. The Apostle John summed it up in 1 John 5 verse 3 when he wrote, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Of course, there's much more that could be learned about godly love, and it will take us a lifetime and then some to learn all of it. But we need to be doing it now. We need to be learning about godly love and how to apply it in our lives now, and we need to be doing it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 Colossians 3 and verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And these are, these are ways in which we express this principle of divine love. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ Jesus forgave you, so you also must do. We must be willing to forgive others. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So we are to put on love, and that means that we must cultivate love. We must strive to understand how to apply this principle of divine love in our lives. We are to walk in love, as he wrote to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore, as imitators of God, as dear children, or be imitators of God and as, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So, as children of God, we are to walk in love. And so now is the time for us to be learning to put love in, 
action into in our lives. Not only for the present benefits, but also so that we will be able and prepared to teach godly love in action to all the world when Jesus Christ returns.